to hear from you. I, I pray that you would grant us the gift of your spirit. Um, cause the Holy Spirit to descend on us as we open your word. We, we believe very, very deeply in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this church that, that you want to open our eyes to see wonderful things in the text that we just heard. Lord, we can, we can hear something read, we can, we can see words, but if you, if you don't come and open our, the eyes of our hearts to give us spiritual eyes to see this, this, this falls flat this evening. So please come and grant us the inestimable gift of your presence through the Holy Spirit as we lift up Jesus, uh, which we are so happy to do in this text. He is certainly the centerpiece of, of these seven verses. So come now and do a mighty work through the preaching of your word over these brief moments in Jesus' name. Amen. For as long as I can remember, I have enjoyed a romance with Christmas carols. Um, my, my comments notwithstanding about it's the most wonderful time of the year a few weeks ago, I don't really consider that a Christmas carol, as it were, but uh, my earliest memories associated with the Advent season are with Christmas hymns, those sorts of carols, uh, rich hymns that, that my family sung in the United Methodist Church, also in the Episcopal Church growing up. Um, now, it's true also that my uh, hymnody was uh, informed by the reel-to-reel tapes that my dad would play, featuring Johnny Mathis and Julie Andrews as well this time of year. Uh, hymns nonetheless. I have always been a, a sucker for Christmas carols. And on my short list of favorites uh, has to be the 17th century English hymn, or rather Latin hymn, known as Adesta Fidelis. Adesta Fidelis, better known to us in English as O Come All Ye Faithful. It was written originally with four verses that were then expanded to eight. And O Come All Ye Faithful is an excellent example of a hymn writer doing their, their absolute best to summon us to worship in the chorus on the basis of the successive truths that are shared in each of the, the verses. Um, so verse 1 tells us that Jesus is king of angels, so O come, let us adore him. The original verse 2 that we don't often sing says, God of God, light of light, very God, begotten, not created, O come, let us adore him. And then we hear in verse 3 in our hymnals calls Christ the word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, O come, let us adore him. The writer is beckoning us to worship Jesus, and he is using clear and compelling truths of Scripture to do it, and that is exactly what I want to do this evening with this brief sermon, to use clear and compelling truths from Scripture to beckon us to worship Jesus. So right here in the middle of our musical worship, we have a time to worship over the Word of God right now, and our hope is that with the Spirit's help, as we consider the passage that was just read to us, that these truths will function as a kind of kindling for us on our spirits, on our souls, so that we can worship Christ with even greater intensity this Christmas Eve. So let's get started. Here's, here's the big idea uh, tonight. There is a sermon outline on the reverse side of your sermon note, or on your uh, order of service, if you didn't know. Um, our adoration of King Jesus is fueled by unfathomable biblical truths about our omnipotent God. Our adoration of Jesus is fueled by unfathomable biblical truths about our omnipotent God. Two points tonight, nice and simple, and then we'll enjoy the Lord with some more 
singing, but we want to prepare ourselves for it. So here's the first point. This Christmas, let us remember that we worship a God who rules. He rules with absolute sovereignty. This Christmas, let us remember that we worship a God who rules with absolute sovereignty. Look with me once again at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration which Quirinius, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from a town, the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be betrothed with Mary, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Well, in verses 1 to 3, we learn of a fellow by the name of Caesar Augustus. This man was the emperor of the entire Roman Empire and had been so for the better part of two decades, about 20 years at, at this point by the time that our Lord is born. Caesar Augustus came to power in the years just following the death of Julius Caesar, who was his great uncle. And if Roman emperors were known for anything, it was their audacious displays of raw power over their subjects. In verse 1 is, is such a display. It says, in those days, a decree, the word is dogma in Greek, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The word for decree here uh, gives us the, um, uh, the, the thought that uh, an official um, formal action was taken by the Roman Senate that at least the whole world or the whole world that Rome ruled at this point should be registered. And well, register for what purpose? The text doesn't exactly tell us, but we know historically speaking that this would have been for the assessment of taxes. Of course, this registration also functioned as a census uh, so that Caesar Augustus could know just how vast his kingdom and its population had become. And though it's safe to say that this is a pretty massive inconvenience for uh, the inhabitants of the Roman Empire. This worked out fairly well for Caesar. You can imagine he could collect a tax and he could pat himself on the back with one fell swoop. This is a, this is a power move, is what this is. This, is. this is political posturing. Have we seen any of that this past year? Political posturing. What does God think of this? Well, I love the way that author David Helm puts it in the Big Picture Story Bible. It's a kid's Bible. It says, while Caesar, the king of the Roman world, was showing everyone how great he was by counting all of his people, God, the king of the universe, was showing the world how great he was by becoming one of his people. Isn't that beautiful? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, the text goes on to say in verses 4 and 5 that Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now we know from the study of Luke's gospel so far that we've seen that Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And though Luke doesn't tell us, Matthew reminds us that this is an explicit fulfillment of Holy Scripture in the Old Testament. 
the Old Testament teaches that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Now, Christ is conceived in Nazareth, we take it, but is to be born in Bethlehem. And these towns are the better part of 70 miles away from one another. How's this going to come to pass? Well, I'll tell you how it's going to come to pass. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach comments, Luke portrays Augustus as the unknowing agent of God whose decree leads to the fulfillment of the promised ruler of Bethlehem. The ruler was to come out of Bethlehem and only a governmental decree puts his parents in the right place. Don't be surprised what the Lord might be up to with certain political leaders at work in our nation or in our world today, as preposterous as it may sound. How, how do we apply a truth like this otherwise in our context? I, given our, our current national and sort of geopolitical scene, I should say it should give us unspeakable comfort on a night like this and in a season like this. This Christmas, let us remember that we worship a God who rules he rules. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11 say, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. So, no matter what causes you concern as you survey the world around you this Christmas Eve, uh, from Trump to Putin, from Assad to Erdogan, from cancer to job loss to family conflicts to the, the painful decision that you're considering this season. From the minutia of our lives to the unfolding of the future across the globe, let us remember this Christmas that we worship a God who rules with absolute sovereignty. Now the next pair of truths uh, the next truth that will give us a pair of truths alongside this first one, I think is going to set us up to sing. So here's the second point tonight. This Christmas, let us remember that we worship a God who rules in unparalleled humility. This Christmas, let us remember that we worship a God who rules in unparalleled humility. Now, truth be told, today, this actual day is not the day of Christ's humiliation but of his exaltation. We serve a risen and ascended Savior who is soon to come again. But he did not come to us on the first Christmas exalted, but rather humbled and made low. The rest of our text goes on to say in verses 6 and 7, And while they were there, it's Mary and Joseph, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We often make the innkeeper in this story, who's not mentioned, by the way, we make him out to be some sort of grump or bad guy, some sort of Scrooge. But there's really nothing like that in this text. Remember, it's registration time. It's census time. And this would be akin to looking for a, a room in a hotel in a small college town during the homecoming weekend. There's just no room for this couple, no matter who they are or in who she's bearing. There's no room for them. There's no space. 
So there's really nothing remarkable about that, but the rest of this is, is remarkable. Joseph and Mary hole up in the only shelter they can possibly access, and that would be a, an animal room of some kind, a barn, a stable. Some scholars think it might have been a cave of some kind. Let's not become so familiar with this story that we lose the, the wonder of it all. I mean, we handle holy things, don't we, as Christians? And especially this time of year, our hands can become cauterized by handling truths so holy so often. Let's not let that happen. Verse 7 says that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. And don't miss this. Um, Job chapter 38 verse 9 says, He makes thick darkness a swaddling band. That means that the one who makes thick darkness a swaddling band was himself swaddled by a teenage girl. She wraps Jesus in strips of cloth. It's a reference to the millennia-old practice of swaddling, right? You can, you can picture this. Our kids used to love this. I'm not sure about the younger parents in the room, but Caleb used to get all kinds of excited when he, he knew he was going to be swaddled. The arms and the legs go out straight, and then the material gets wrapped around nice and tight. Researchers uh, tell us that part of the allure of it for babies is that it tends to trigger a, a calming reflex in the child. The idea is that it, it simulates a, a womb-like atmosphere for the baby. It calms the baby down. Are we to deduce that Jesus might have been a little fussy this first night? I, I suspect it's possible. Uh, now, we, we sing, right? The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Really? No crying? Those of us who are parents maybe know otherwise. We have evidence that Jesus cried as a man. John 11.35 tells us that Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. It wouldn't surprise me that he cried at his own birth. Most babies do. So she wrapped him up and laid him in a manger. This is a dirty place. This is an empty feed trough. The Old Testament said Bethlehem, but it mentioned nothing of a stable, nothing of a feed trough. No, these revelations actually were held on to till this very moment in the history of Revelation. Uh, Martin Luther looked at this verse and said, if the prophets themselves had come to the manger, they would have hesitated. <laughs> What's this all about? This is about humility. This is our Savior. This is what makes Jesus so remarkable as a king. This Christmas, remember that we worship a God who rules. He rules in unparalleled humility. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, I think the application of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 is uniquely helpful for us at this point. Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out to his own, not only to his own interests, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. And by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, 
and therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, that our church might be known for this virtue, humility, above any other gift that he might give us this season. That our lives would be increasingly marked by the, by the pulverizing of our pride in our walk with the Lord. This is the Lord that we worship. And unlike Caesar Augustus, Jesus, in the days of his first advent, didn't um, exercise power over people as much as power under people. Mark 10.45 tells us that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is humility. It's not so much thinking less of ourselves, it's just thinking of ourselves less. So let's be low before our King this season and let's stay low before him. We serve a crucified King after all. And if you're with us today and you're, you're not a Christian, we are, we are glad that you're visiting with us this evening. You are welcome here, especially this night. And our prayer for you as a congregation is that you would come to know and trust and love and enjoy and treasure this Savior. It's Jesus as we do, because this baby grew up. He lived a perfect life. It's the life that each of you ought to live, and I should live, but we don't. And then in the last week of his life, he suffered and died an excruciating death on a cross. It's the death that each of us deserve to die. And he died that sacrificial death on the cross in the place of anyone who would ever turn from their sins and put their faith in him. That's something that you can do tonight. Have you? Will you? You can come to the Savior this evening. This Christmas, let us remember that we worship a God who rules. He, he, worships, he rules in unparalleled humility. Let's review. Our adoration of Jesus is fueled by unfathomable biblical truths about our omnipotent God. This Christmas, let us remember, we worship a God who rules with absolute sovereignty and with unparalleled humility. And now, we're ready to sing. First, let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son this night. Lord Jesus, we look at this text and we see simplicity everywhere. Um, the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Jewish people came, but he didn't come with a, with a royal welcome. He came to be born in an animal room, in a, in a feed trough. And yet, as we mentioned earlier, never yet in, in all of it, stopped upholding uh, the universe by the word of his power as it happened. And so, Lord Jesus, we are in awe. We, we worship a sovereign king and we worship a humble king. Would you create in our hearts the, the appropriate effect that ought to respond to such truths? Lord, you are sovereign. May we trust you. You are humble may we reflect your humility in our lives. Lord, we are proud people, but may we be proud people pursuing humility 
by the grace of God, for the glory of God, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.